Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the folks that are building them. Today, I'm joined by someone a little bit different, but also quite familiar. Returning to the mic to sub in today, we have Daryl Etherington. Daryl, how's it going? It's going great. I love the descriptor. A little bit different, but familiar. I think I'm going to use that on my business cards going forward. You're like, I actually am going to describe myself as that in every scenario now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, do return for a great show. Today, we're talking to Professor Esther Rodriguez Villegas from Acurable, which is a medical device company which makes patient-friendly wearable devices that accurately diagnose and manage respiratory conditions at home. Hey, Esther, how's it going? Hello. It's going well, actually. Just come back from holiday, so finding my feet. <laughs> Same here. For the listeners at home, we are recording this the day after Labor Day weekend. So can't be that bad if none of us are still digging ourselves out of Burning Man. So (laughs) I think we're in a pretty good spot, I would say. Cool. Well, Esther is here today to talk about a curable. So why don't we start there? Esther, why don't you tell us a little bit about the company? So uh, a curable is a medical devices company, wearables medical devices company, I would say. Basically, I always say that it kind of started accidentally, although some people who have known me through the years have said that actually there was nothing accidental about it. It was bound to happen. I'm an academic and yeah, my career started like, well, actually it started as an integrated circuit designer, did my PhD, ended up being given an academic position in one of the top universities in the world, which is Imperial College London. And everybody thought I was going to follow the conventional academic path of you know, being in the lab and solving big problems, but in a very, in some ways, detached from the real world. So translation was for somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. Normally, that's generally what happens in academia. The issue was that I actually had ended up doing what I was doing because I like solving problems rather than because I like the subject matter. So I now, which I'm older, I say, when people ask me, what are you? And I say, I'm two things the problem solver and an inventor, hmm. right? None of the titles that people assign to me. So I was thinking, okay, yeah, I have ended up here, but realistically, I need my a new problem to solve. Big problem, no little problem. And I wanted something that has social impact because that was what really, really triggered me as well. So it was the fun of solving the problem and at the same time doing something for the world. And I thought, I can't really do that with my current skill set and my current knowledge, which is what I had been hired to be an academic for. So I thought, I'm going to go into healthcare. So I'm going to try to combine this with healthcare in the most naive possible way when you are in your 20s and you know very little of the world, no matter what you think. So that was my great idea. And I happened to bump into somebody who, when I told him the big idea, this was a complete stranger, said to me, why don't you come with me? I got something that might inspire you. So got in a car with a stranger, go to the British countryside, something that, you know, the 40-something-year-old me, I would never do. And I wouldn't <laughs> recommend any daughter of mine to do. But the 20-something-old me decided that that was a great idea. So go to the British countryside and end up in this beautiful village called Charfont. And what I could not imagine when I got out of the car was what I was going to see when the doors open. So I see all these people walking around with cables hanging from their head, going all the way to their abdomen. And I said, what is this? 
And he told me, well, we are one of the centers of excellence for diagnosis of complex epilepsy in the world. And what you are seeing is patients who are actually very lucky because they have access to this. In most places in the world, patients don't have access to this. They have been having what is called refractory epilepsy, which is epilepsy that does not respond to drugs. And now they are here because they are going to be monitored in some cases for a period of weeks. So to see what else can be done for them. And at that point was the light bulb in my head. I thought this is what I'm going to do. Why? Because for me, again, the knife me thought, I can't believe this is done like this. What I used to do was what my PhD was about was the design of really low power integrated circuits. These patients had the cables going to the abdomen because they had the battery this big. So I thought, I mean, why? I mean, that's it. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to create a smart integrated circuits that are going to get rid of the cables. And not only that, they are also going to be interpreting the signals that come from the brain. All of this on chip. And I'm the perfect person to do this. Wow. That started this, the whole journey, right? And again, what happened in the process was that unlike most academics, and I'm not telling any academic to do what I did, okay? So <laughs> I'm not the repository of how to do things well. In fact, it's something I might be the opposite. But instead of going and looking for collaborators to look for the big problem, I like, as again, as a problem solver, <laughs> I am somebody who likes getting deep into the problem. So I started getting deep into the problem and I studied from many different areas on my own. I couldn't have leave a question unsolved. And that led me to know a lot. And again, the story continues to the point that, well, at some point I got to, I realized that being in academia is very difficult to get to the patient. Mm. Somebody else will do it. And I started this to get to the patients. And the frustration I had was such that I thought, that's it. Nobody's going to do it for me. So I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And that's how I ended up starting Acurable. So I'm still an academic, by the way. I'm still an entrepreneur. So I do both things. Cool. And something that I'm so interested about, especially with how you got interested in the concept of making these more user-friendly wearable devices, is how did you land on sleep apnea? And sort of how did you guys decide what you're going to focus on first? And what did that look like? Well, this also came from epilepsy. So mm -hmm. it turns out that I started studying about electroencephalography and about epilepsy in general, right? And about medical devices. And uh, after a while, I got a very strange email from the medical director of the National Society for Epilepsy saying, I need you to help me to save lives, nothing else. So, of course, oh, I reacted to that, <laughs> right? And this is something I, I later on found also very common with clinicians, that they read very cryptic emails. I mean, <laughs> 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 I immediately reacted. And uh, he explained to me the problem of sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, which is something that I also want to raise awareness about. It's something that is very tragic. Uh, epilepsy patients are under risk of this. Basically, what happens is that, you know, this normally occurs to adolescents or older people, old people, but it peaks around the age of 25. These patients, something happens that they stop breathing during the night, their cardiac rhythms changes, and maybe something else happens they don't know enough about, but they just die. Hmm. Now, what had been known until then is that those patients that somebody had noticed that they had stopped breathing on time, 
within a few minutes could be safe with basic stimulation. And then those in which there was a massive delay, like 10 minutes, they had died, right? So in his head, there were around 1,000 cases registered a year in the UK. He thought this is about detecting the absence of reading. And uh, he also thought, yeah, but the problem is that there is not a device that patients would be willing to use every night because the issue here comes from the fact that epilepsy patients might be controlled with medication, right? So how do you convince an adolescent who is controlled with medication to wear a device every single night because they might die, right? So it's not frequent enough for them to be so worried, but when it happens, mm. it's tragic, right? So there was this combination of usability and accuracy. And he thought, this must be trivial for an engineer who knows how to reduce the size of the system. So he comes to me with a problem. I thought the same as him. Again, naivety. Hmm. I thought compared to the brain signals that are really difficult to interpret, and you see them, and they're really small and really corrupted. And I thought respiration must be trivial. So in fact, the only reason why I didn't say no to him was because I felt really sorry for the patients because in my head, this was a trivial problem to solve. And I did not want the trivial problem. Now, the interesting thing is that when I started working on respiration, I realized that the respiratory signal is much harder as a signal than the brain signal for a million reasons. So suddenly, my research starts focusing on two different branches, right? And at some point... I realized that actually the whole clinical picture of sudden unexpected death in epilepsy was still evolving. As I said, they didn't know enough and suddenly they start knowing more and the original hypothesis had changed. But what the knowledge I had extracted that was applicable to many other areas of cardiorespiratory medicine was massive. And one of those areas was obstructive sleep apnea, right? So I, at that point, I thought, I have the solution for this in my head, right? I had all the pieces of the puzzle. It was just a matter of putting it together. So that's the point in which Acurable was born because from my point of view, that wasn't fundamental research anymore and the first product was defined. Now, hopefully, that is the first product. There will be others coming, but Medical devices are complex, so it's not something like you can have the idea today and you're going to have a product in six months' time. There are many other things that come into play. So the, the product like specifically is about sleep apnea, but is it, it seems like it can be applied much more broadly than just the case of epilepsy. Is that true, or do, do you need to do other refinements to the existing product to address more broadly sleep apnea? No, the, the product is for anyone that could have a sleep apnea, anyone. So epilepsy is simply how the story takes place, right? What took me to the product itself? But the product is for anyone who could have a sleep apnea. Now, the beauty of it is that having started with epilepsy, the constraints for the product were much stricter than the constraints for other wearables, right? Which is what makes the product extremely easy to use, right? And it's perfect for vulnerable populations because of the design itself and the fact that it works with that design comes from that, that it was creative thinking of a very extreme case. Now, the tech and the knowledge behind it is potentially applicable to adult things, but in any medical device, uh, you have to look for the intended use. That's the key, right? 
what is the device going to do and what is going to be the performance of it that regulatory bodies could be comfortable with. So it's not that I can now go and say, hey, I know that my product is detecting this and uh, I'm going to start selling it for this other disease. No, you have to basically now define exactly what are going to be the outputs for the new disease. How does that compare with the gold standard? You need to prove that and you need to go down the regulatory process. I also noticed, and you mentioned like that you had been focused on brain signal detection and you didn't then give that up. You also are doing that at the same time, right? You have your other startup that seems to focus on, on that area. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, ironically, both things came out at the same time. I mean, again, completely unintended. So what happened with brain signal detection was that actually at some point, okay, from the engineer, this was the problem solving side, right? That at some points, there is an organization, government-run organization in the UK, which is the National Center for Reduction, Replacement, and Refinement of Animals and Research, what is called the three R's. And they launched a competition which was aiming to find solutions for challenges that they had. Normally, these challenges were established by the pharmaceutical companies, of course, as I say, in collaboration with this organization. So they were looking into what can we do about this so that the conditions of the animals improve, whilst at the same time, we can do more efficient research, pharmacological research, right? Because it's research for which you have no option but to use animals. And so if you were to think, for example, of all kinds of drugs for neurological conditions, dementia, Parkinson, and so on, there is no other way to do this before you were to humans that actually testing with animal models, right? Right. And it's also very complex science because there are no clear biomarkers for those conditions. So what happens in your brain? So the problem they had was the best models were mice models. And... When you are testing those drugs, if you give the drug to the animal, but then you condition the life of the animal, how do you know whether the behavior of the animal is associated to the drug or Uh, is associated to, right? Right. So the only way to measure the brain of the animal was to have, imagine a, a bunch of cables coming out from the little mouse head connected to a monitoring unit that is connected to the mains in a room and then the animal is doing all these tests with the, all these maces and things like that. I mean, it was awful for both. It's awful for the animal and it's awful for the outcomes of the mm-hmm. research. So they said, yeah, but the problem is that there is no way of reducing this because what we need to extract from the brain was much more than what you extract from the brain of the human in epilepsy. So in engineering terms, right? So there was nothing in the market that was able to get to what they needed. So there were things, but they were very limited in performance. So they wanted the like for like, and they launched a competition looking for proposals for potential solutions, and then they could fund, and then let's see how far we went, right? So we applied, and then I was very honest. I said, look, this is what is physically possible. Physically, like the equations are telling me these are the fundamental limits. So there are no fundamental limits telling me it's impossible, but there is also the knowledge of what I have been doing in humans, and I can tell you what you're asking for, I don't have the certainty this is going to be possible, but I can get in between. In some way, I think they appreciated the honesty. We won the competition. Mm. And uh, they are still reminding me that because three years later, not only we had what they wanted, we actually had something that was better. So, of course, as soon as we wanted it, there was this push. I was starting a curable at that time. But now there was the push of, well, no, 
this needs to be commercial because we need it. Right? Right. <laughs> so we have to start the other company, but it works. The other company works in a very different way. It grows organically, creates systems on demand. So yeah, it's a different model. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that with having both a couple companies at the same time, as well as still teaching and doing research and the like, how do you split up your time? Because sometimes you talk to entrepreneurs and they're like, I don't even have time to exercise. Like this company, (laughs) it's 95 hours a day. Like, how do you think about time management with all of these different things you have going on? So I'll tell you, I mean, this this might sound odd, but thinking of what could have helped, right? I find that there are advantages and disadvantages of starting a company young. I always say, I've been very honest to people, I did not start a company in my 20s. I started a company in my 40s, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the thing with that is that there were many lessons that I could transfer from other things. And one of that is absolutely time management. So I think I'm really, really good at establishing priorities. I'm really good at establishing risks. So I go master plans in my mind that have to run like clockwork, right? I think that has helped and that helps enormously. One other thing is I say no to a lot of things. For example, I think my, my inbox have got thousands of literally unanswered emails. Some people tell me, how is that possible? I get stressed looking at it. I said, for me, it's noise. I don't even pay attention to that, right? I basically decide, yeah, that what things are really important and what things are not. And there, there were times for everything, right? When I was just an academic, I built up my academic career. I got to the, I got my chair. And then at that point, I decided, you know, there are other people that continue. They become presidents of universities and things like that. That did not motivate me. I thought, I've already done that. Now my role is in academia is kind of different, right? The challenge for me now is to actually create this company and get to millions of patients. Actually, that's the reality. That's really what is behind all of this. For me, the challenge is millions of patients and for my team is to build the company. So basically, even when they sound different, they are aligned because I always say the only way of getting to millions of patients is actually to make this a success. So I've got no option. (laughs) And a follow-up, On that too, which you just mentioned, your team is sort of working on building the actual company. I was going to ask about that with hiring and sort of with having these couple different companies and teaching as well. How do you think about hiring to make sure that everything at the end of the day, like is getting done across the board? That is actually, I think that's crucial. And again, I had a lot of experience there, right? Because being an academic at Imperial, I was very, very used to identifying talent. So I had already made mistakes in the past. I have learned from my mistakes. And for me, that was, and is still key, spend time on identifying talent. If you find the right person, that right person can do the job of 10 people and make you waste less time. Hmm. So it's better to spend longer on identifying that person than jumping to somebody just because you think that is work to do, right? Hmm. So we, we do spend that time. There are also things that, again, when there will be a time when none of this will be possible, which is we are very critical with personality things, not just talent. So talent is important, but personality is as well. Because the thing is that you could have a room full of very smart people. If they don't work together, it's going to be a disaster, right? And one other thing is that what I did find, everybody says that, you know, well, a happy working environment is a more efficient working environment, right? The beauty of having a company in which the main motivator is the patient is that for some reason, well, I think that attracts a lot of nice people. 
right? So, because they are attracted by the mission. Right. They are not only attracted by, yeah, okay, I'm going to have a stock options and I'm going to make millions and all of that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I am saying what our formula at the moment is. And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. Yeah, I think the other question I had about impact and then making sure that like you reach as many people as possible and that also that the business is successful. Like, do you think about joining larger companies? I'm sure you've been approached. Like, you, you think about big technology companies and a lot of them are trying to do a lot of this all the time. I mean, Apple comes to mind just because they have an event coming up and they're constantly trying to add new sensors and capabilities to their health-focused devices like the watch, right? It's an area of incredible interest that those companies where they're like, we've reached kind of the end of our market. We need to expand and do more. How do you think about that? Like, do you think about consumer-level devices that are much more mass market as a way to go in future? Have people approached you and have you had to struggle with the decision to focus on what you're doing versus joining something much larger like that? Well, I think the problem with big corporations, again, having living one of a different kind, uh-huh. is that they are, I mean, maybe not all of them, but many of them are actually not very agile places. Right. It takes a long time to make decisions. And that's something that I discovered that is I love about being in a startup. So I think there are people that are, I suppose, born to be working in a big corporation and there are people who are born to be in a startup, right? So look, uh, personally, for me, success in life is not really what you are going to write on your CV. Mm -hmm. I think the success in life is what makes you, if you get up every morning, jumping out of bed because you're looking forward to the day, right? I'm looking forward to a day which is going to be different, which is going to have challenges in, in which you are thinking, you know, I need to find a solution. Well, call it so- solution has got a negative connotation. I need to find an answer for this, an answer for the answer for this. And I'm surrounded by like-minded people that make my brain tick. So I, I never say never because, sure, yeah. again, I mean, this is something that, as soon as you say something like that, <laughs> something happens that it proves you wrong. <laughs> but at the moment, no, I'm not tempted to, to move from where I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you guys also are thinking about scale, because obviously you've been working on this one product, which while it has sort of broader use cases than what you guys originally intended, it isn't, you know, that's what you get in the healthcare space. You don't generally make things that could be used by everyone because everyone has specific things going on, conditions and the like. And so I'm curious how you guys think about scale. Do you think more about expanding on the path you guys are on now, building more for that area? Do you think about wearable devices for other types of conditions and things like that? Or like, how do you think about sort of taking the company to the next step? Yeah, so exactly what you just said. We are thinking of wearables, mostly based on the same technology, although the knowledge goes beyond this, right? For a wide variety of conditions. So we call this very, very long. I always say that the only reason why we're not talking all of them at the same time is because we would need a ridiculous amount of money that uh, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise we would be like targeting like 10 different conditions right now. Mm-hmm. 
And what, when it comes to the money, what are those conversations like when you're looking for funding? And I, I mean, sure, it's the medical devices industry and like there's tons of money there when it comes to insurer pays and whatever else, right? But like, is it a complex conversation when you're talking about what the revenue looks like if you're looking for funding? I mean, it's, it's, it's complex because not everybody understands that how the revenue curve with respect to time looks like in the medical device industry is not the same as in other industries, right? right? It's not. So basically, it's a game of patience for everybody. If you put a consumer device in the market and the, and the product is success, successful, your revenue goes like that very quickly. In a medical device, it goes really slowly until it takes off. Mm, mm-hmm. Because most other things, I think in the US, it's slightly different. But if you were look, to look into Europe, for example, you don't, even from the regulatory point of view, you're not allowed to use conventional marketing strategies for your device. So this is word of mouth and the people who are going to be talking about your device are the clinicians. And the the clinicians, two things, well, three things. On one hand, the vast majority do care very much about their patients, right? Let's make this clear. So they have got this attitude of something new, something disruptive, and they have seen a lot of things that don't work, right? Let's talk smartwatches. And they they get worried, right? They see something new and they think, okay, would I be doing something wrong by giving this to my patient? So... The first thing that clinicians want to do until the, the word starts spreading, which is when the curve starts going like that, is to actually test it themselves. So you got your regulatory clinical trials that you think is, a, well, if you haven't done this before, you think, okay, this is the end of the story. I got my stamp, right? I can do it. No. Now every single clinician is going to want to do their own trial. Not necessarily call it trial. They just, you know, they just do it because it's regulated to be used in patients. So They just want to make sure that the output that is giving is exactly what they are expecting. Now you have to wait because that takes time. And this is for every single contract. Then when do they talk to each other? When they go to conferences and those might happen once a year. Then another thing is when you are dealing with big contracts, the bureaucracy will go back to the big organizations, right? The clinicians might say, yeah, I want it. And that is the case because financially it makes sense. It makes sense for the patients. But now you've got the bureaucrats. Right. And you can be sitting on a contract for two years. Yeah. And it will happen. You know, it will happen. But how does that look in the revenue curve? So I think this is what a lot of entrepreneurs in the medical device industry find, right? That I think it's harder to have those conversations with investors because not all investors are open to that. Mm, yeah. So, so far, we are okay. So far. But is that, are you mostly working with investors who understand and have seen it previously or has there been a lot of education that you've had to do? So, we have had to do quite a bit of education but what we did have was very open-minded investors. So, they were willing to be educated. That's the thing. So, I think so far, we have been, yeah, I mean, we are very happy with, with our investors. Mm-hmm. But we are also quite cautious with how we spend, precisely because of the timing uncertainty. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, obviously, before the economic downturn, there was this drive to spend money. Yeah. Right? If you yeah. had a startup and you got this massive round of funding that is insane valuation, and then you said, yes, but this is going to last me 18 months. For me, when I, it's mostly my friends in the US, right? <laughs> For me, I found that so worrying because mm. I thought, I don't want to be running like, you know, the little hamster in the wheel constantly. I need to put my mind into actually making, you know, the product to the patient and right. that will take time. So we need to make this money last. 
So we stretch the capital in many different ways. Yeah. Which, again, it was kind of lucky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because, but if the times are good, even if they were never turned bad, yeah, like a lot of those investors were just spending 100% of their time in fundraising cycles and none of their time on product build or whatever. They were leaving that to other people. Whereas the old, like, I mean, the more sustainable way has always seemed to be you do your fundraising thing. It's probably not what anybody wants to be doing most of the time, but then you get to stop and not do that for a while and then focus on on the business. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we have been doing. I, I think part of it was, that's what everything was telling me. My brain, my gut, everything. Reason, right? This is how you have to do it. Mm. Even when, again, I had some wisdom out of my eyes, that's not the way you do it, you know? <laughs> you fill yourself with executives who do the work for you. You pay them a right. fortune. And then you are fundraising in 18 months. I'm thinking, that will not work for me. But ultimately, I had a really odd role in some ways because I'm not an operational CEO mm. or, or, you know, a fundraising CEO. So I needed to be in all those conversations. Because ultimately, this is my vision. So I needed to be in the fundraising conversations that take time. Mm -hmm. They took it, take a lot of time. But at the same time, the people developing the product also needed me because I'm an expert on the tech. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have the luxury to be raising funding constantly. So that was approach we followed. Let's hope it, <laughs> it works in the future. <laughs> <term. That's really> <laughs> and one thing I wanted to ask you about was sort of this path of being in academia now starting a company, I feel like we're starting to see this more and more. There always, of course, were academics who then started companies, but it never seemed like it was such a big part of the startup ecosystem, and it seems to be a growing one now. And I'm curious, coming from that world, do you think that makes you a better entrepreneur? You just mentioned something right now about how you think you've kind of thought through some of these things a little bit more product-focused as opposed to the fundraising side, the business focus, which maybe if you're more pure play coming into it, wanting to be an entrepreneur the whole time, you may think about things a little bit differently than that. So how do you think having that background has helped you thus far? Well, it has helped me because in academia, I mean, mostly when you are in, in a heavily focused research institution, right? You have to wear many roles. So something that I had to do was I had to build my research lab from scratch. So when I started this job, they gave me 5,000 pounds and an open office and an empty office. So that's all I had. I didn't have a startup package and they threw me in front of a class with 200 students who were barely younger than me to teach. And I was again in my 20s. So the thing is that I had to find the money. I had to find the problem. I had to start like finding how to actually train these students from all over the world who in some cases I have to be honest, didn't respect me for a million reasons, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I was, a, sorry for this, but, uh, to bring this up, but I was a woman in a male-dominated environment and I wasn't much older than they were and I didn't get the same amount of respect as my colleagues. Mm -hmm. So in that kind of situation, you, you have two options. One option is you give up and the other one is that you say, I'm going to make it happen. So this was the resilience that I brought, right? And I think that that comes very handy in a startup. <laughs> like uh, we all yes. know that. <laughs> that you have to be more than anything, you have to be resilient. Now, to the question of whether being an academic makes you a better or a worse entrepreneur, it depends. I mm. think is I think entrepreneurs have to have a certain personal characteristics 
regardless of where you come. It doesn't matter whether you are an academic or where you come from anywhere. Now, I don't think that being an academic is going to give you those characteristics mm-hmm. or are going are to make those characteristics more pronounced than if you come from a different place. I think it's a personality thing. And sort of thinking about where you guys are now so far in the journey with both the first device you guys are putting out as well as sort of some plans for down the road. How are you thinking about the next couple of years? What are the next steps in the future for a curable? So the next step is building up the team. That's the immediate step internationally. So we do have the team in, in the UK and in several parts of Europe, but we need to build up that team, for example, in the US, right? Mm-hmm. It needs to have, so we just hired very recently a general manager and now we have to expand from there. So that is the most immediate plan. And obviously we go all the engineering and scientific team working in new products. Um, we got clinical trials going at the moment that at different stages. So we have one that is super exciting that I'm hoping it's going to give us a very, very exciting variation of the, pro- of the product within the next few months, actually. So I should be starting to work on the regulatory dossier imminently. That's for children. So yeah, that is a lot to do. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned before the kind of economic uncertainty. Does that affect any of your plans about how you're going about things? You said you were already kind of conservative by default or by nature when it comes to finances, but did it affect anything as it pertains to roadmap or markets or anything like that? Well, I think it affects a bit the speed at which we are going to go in the U.S., Mm. right? Because building a sales team there is really expensive. Yeah. So that does not mean we are not going to do it or we are not doing it. We are doing it. But the question is, how aggressive can we be about it, right? Ultimately, that's a really difficult question to answer. Yeah. Very, we don't know. And you uh, stay nimble, right? Because who knows what's going on? Like <laughs> every day, because yeah. people, I was just reading like, oh, the economic, there's no recession now. I'm like, is, is there not one? What's it going to say tomorrow? Is it coming? I don't know what's happening. So I understand yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> that's an issue. <laughs> well, cool. Also, how many people do you have at the company mm. right now? <laughs> the number keeps changes every day. I think we... <laughs> Last time I looked two weeks ago, ago we were 30 or 31. <laughs> we keep recruiting. Yeah. yeah. How does it feel? Like, how do you handle that kind of like uh, rapid growth and team change dynamics? Do you think a lot about like culture and like how the team kind of meshes and works well together? Oh, yes. So, again, this is a learning process, right? It's like when you thought you knew, you knew it almost all, <laughs> you realize, you think, I don't know anything. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you and you also realize how it's the first time I work with people that with a certain type of skills that I hadn't worked before. Right. And uh, and then you do realize that integration of those people within the mindset of a different group of people is not straightforward. No. So an engineer does not think the same way as an operational person who takes care of fulfillment, but they need to work together, yeah, right? Yeah. And they kind of follow the engineer thinks, I don't agree with how he's doing that. Uh-huh. And it's like, no, but he's got, this person has the logic and the skills <laughs> as well, right? So it's really, really tricky to handle all of this. Yeah. And also, I don't have to say one thing, which is, I'm a massive introvert. So I never consider myself a people's <laughs> person, right? Right. So, that comes as an additional challenge. I, I went on holiday 
And I, I think the second day of holiday, I told my sister, I came to the conclusion I really don't understand people. Uh. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, it's very difficult, I know. And, and there's skills that you're hiring people for specifically that are not only at odds with skills that other people in your organization have, but can threaten to subsume them. I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations, but like there's a characteristic I've noticed, say, among salespeople that is like they want to get the job done. They want to land the contract at all costs. And that can then like, that can really conflict with like other people in the organization who are go with the flow type or or like naturally maybe introverted or shy or shrinking violet or whatever. And it can have disastrous consequences if you're not paying attention to that interaction or that friction in the organization. Yeah, yeah. I think, again, I don't have the time and I don't like with writing, but I could write a book about this. Exactly <laughs> <laughs> that point. Just that point. Full of anecdotes. <laughs> and I think, unfortunately, we are at time. But this has been such a fun conversation. Yes. And thanks so much, Esther, for coming on. Thanks to both of you for being here and asking me all these questions. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Yeah, and you'll figure people out, I'm sure. It's, it'll take some time. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> and that was our conversation with Esther. Daryl, what did you think? Uh, I thought it's great. I think it's really interesting what she's doing. I think when I looked at the website leading up to this and saw the device, it was like, wow, that's really small, especially compared to the equipment I'm familiar with for dealing with sleep apnea, which I don't have direct personal experience with, but my father has that and has had to wear various headgear things over the years. And this is like a little tiny, effectively cylinder that I think you put on your throat. And it looks really small and unobtrusive or intrusive, but the, the applications are huge provided that the thirst and the desire for low-power electronics that do diagnostics is just massive and growing. We talked about it a bit with some of the big device makers, but I am curious, you know, what are the limits of this or like how far can it go or something like that, you know? Definitely. No, and that's one of the main questions I had after because thinking about how many, just the pure scope of how many medical devices there are, it's like, of course, like, a bunch probably could fit this model and be made smaller and more comfortable and stuff like that, which would be great. But there's got to be a limit somewhere. Mm. Some stuff just too big, too expensive, too XYZ. And I am kind of curious. I mean, we could have spent probably five hours going on like which devices could work for this, which devices couldn't. But like, I am kind of curious how that all works because it's such like a foreign area to me. Yeah, I think it sounded like she was skeptical about even it working for not the sleep apnea application, but the brain sensor thing that they applied to, because given the specs and requirements, she was skeptical they'd be able to match them. And then she said they matched and exceeded them. So maybe they're still figuring out the limits of like what you can actually do in terms of miniaturizing. I think she alluded to this, but I also would have liked to have dug into this more was on device processing and what you can do now with kind of AI at the edge, I guess, as you would call it in the popular terminology, where it's doing a lot of this stuff on chip, as opposed to just collecting it and routing it somewhere else. That's kind of interesting. It seems like it opens up a lot of possibilities too. So maybe it's more than we suspect. But the sleep apnea example comes back because you do, when I think about a lot of those devices, they're intervention devices where like it's actually restarting breathing and it has tubes and it's connected to like a respirator or something, right? Whereas this is not doing that. Right. This is like 
detecting and then I presume providing some kind of alert or something like that, but not doing much more, right? Yeah. Like we we're saying earlier, I mean, there are definitely limits to sort of how much you really can make that small and make that yeah. portable and easy to use at home. You can't shrink the pipes that bring air into your lungs to the size of like your thumbnail. It doesn't make any sense physically. So there are limits. You definitely shouldn't. No. <laughs> True. I think one of the other things I thought was really interesting about this conversation is sort of the founding story, especially with her going to that village in the British countryside and sort of seeing all of the epilepsy patients mm. because it's funny if she saw that and was like, wow, I'm inspired. I was like, if I saw that, I'd be so freaked out. Right. Like, <laughs> I have such a different reaction. I know. Yeah. But she seemed like that is what drives her, right? Like, like a challenge and specifically a challenge made material, right? Like she's not a theoretical academic. She's very much a pragmatic, practical academic where she wants to see a problem in the flesh and then be able to be like, that looks like a challenge. And I'm already envisioning ways that I can go about doing it. Whereas I would be like you and I would be like, I don't know why you've showed me this. I'm horrified. I never want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you bring up a good point too about her being an academic as a piece of this. Because I'm always so interested. We've had a, we had a few academic founders on earlier this year and it was kind of similar where like one got into being an entrepreneur essentially by accident like she ran out of grant money like she was applying to grants and they're like this is a company like this isn't research anymore and I've always thought that's so interesting the people who work on issues for so long but then they don't get applied and it's kind of like what I get the point, satisfaction, liking to do research, totally understand it from like a career standpoint. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, what exactly is the point? Right. So it is kind of nice like hearing her being like, well, yeah, I didn't just want to like sit and talk about this in my classes and like do this in the lab. It's like, if I care about this issue, like I want to actually build something that solves it. Yeah. Which is why I don't understand why we don't see more academics turn into entrepreneurs for that reason. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it It, also, it does depend on, I guess, your values. Like, because I know a lot of academics who are like very satisfied with occupying a strictly cerebral, like all of their stuff is theoretical and only applies in the theoretical for now. But then they have like a legacy that like, I guess that will inform future research for generations. I think it's like the time frame right. of your ability to think or care or worry about your impact, right? Where a lot of people are like, I want to, I want to see the impact that I'm having. I don't want to imagine that sometime far-flung generations in the future, I'll have an impact. It's like, I want to have that impact now. Right. And then I think you still, among startups, you still see both kinds of people go into business. There's, I'm remembering them. I did a panel on like disaster robotics and one person was like very much a theoretical, like we built systems and then we're interested in people going out and testing them and seeing their application. But then the other other person was very much like, all I work on is disaster response. And all I want to do is save lives in the moment at the site of actual disasters happening, right? So they have very different kinds of companies and interests, but they're still both pursuing that entrepreneurship route. So I think you can still do both too and live in that, the business side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was just interesting to hear about sort of building a medical device company in the UK Because I feel like, of course, here in the U.S., it's like capitalism, baby. Like healthcare is like, (laughs) got to do your own marketing, got to do like nothing subsidized. Like everything can be as expensive as you want. So it is interesting to like hear a little bit about building this in a different country that obviously has very different rules and practices about stuff like that. And I mean, I'm no expert on healthcare policies, but I mean, the fact that they can't 
market it commercially has always confused me that you can right. in the U.S. So I'm like, I am curious what that sales cycle looks like now if you can't do that. But I mean, I have always wondered if people are actually sitting at home and being like, wow, that medical device, I'm going to go into work tomorrow and tell my boss to buy it. Like, I just, I don't uh, know if that strategy in the U.S. actually even works. I know, it's, it's super weird. I mean, it's always weird now even seeing commercials generally, like traditional terrestrial TV commercials. I'll see them and be like, Wow, these are these still exist and people are still seeing them. Like there's massive swaths of the population that just don't even know that they're happening, as opposed to before when you had essentially a captive audience that was there. And then it's a subset of that who are seeing like, yeah, an ad for some device that is being somewhat oblique about its purpose in most cases, if they don't want to also provide a litany of after effects or potential side effects or whatever. And then you're like, who is this for? <laughs> What's it accomplishing? Right. Yeah. No, I know. That's like, I remember I was watching the World Cup last year on Sportsnet and some kind of drug ad came on, but because it's Canada, they can't like say anything about it. So I feel like they just said the name a bunch of times and were like, well, what does it do? And he was like, the commercial like slapped to a different screen and I was like, ask your doctor. And I was just like, what's the point of this? Yeah, it's just (laughs) ask your doctor. But you just see the people and you're like... I identify with these people, but I want my life to look like theirs instead of mine. And therefore, I'll just go ask for this random drug, <laughs> which your physician <laughs> must be like, what? Some How did you find out about this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I definitely, that is something I wish we maybe have asked about more. Like, she talked a bit about the sales cycle there, but everything over there is so different in the healthcare system. I'm like very interested in like how it compares and contrasts how you sell these types of things. Yeah, for sure. And then when she was talking about U.S. market expansion, right? And so that's like not, in other industries, there's always market challenges, always, to be clear. But in other industries, the market challenges are, I think, somewhat less than they are in medical, where it's like, it's a completely different regulatory environment, highly, highly scrutinized by the public, by regulators, by everything, and completely different conditions in which you are able to go to market. So very, very different and very challenging, right? Yeah. And the note about how she said they've been really frugal even before like the current Mm. venture funding environment just because of how slow the sales cycle is because of all the regulatory stuff and the rules is a very smart way to go about it, I would say. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Listener.